welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome those online. Great to have you join us. I'm uh, Pastor Ross, and uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 for the first time. We're, uh, we're quickly coming to an end of this, uh, this study. Uh, and, and normally when you're reading a book, you come to a new chapter and you kind of think, okay, the author's going to start a new idea. He's closed up the previous one. He's got a new concept, new idea, and let's move forward on that. Uh, but that's not the case because this isn't a, a typical book. It's actually a letter. And, and when you think about it, you just write a letter, you're just sort of writing out in a continuous fashion. And, and the chapters and verses were added later. Uh, but the reality is that this uh, chapter 13 is really just a continuation of the last few verses that we looked at uh, last week in chapter 12, uh, which some of you might be groaning at that idea because last week we talked about sin and, and repentance and we're going to continue that because uh, some of you need it. I'm not going to mention Greg's name. I'm not going to do that. Um, and for those that weren't here, let me take the time to confront you right now so you can repent. I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you remember what we did look at, we saw that it's actually love to confront someone when they're in their sin. That, that the reason we're doing that is because sin always leads to death. Sin always hurts yourself and those around you. And so there's a time where we go and we confront that person, where we we're willing to get up in their face, not to condemn, not to criticize, not to beat them up, but rather to save them from experiencing death. And we saw that there's only one answer to sin and that's, that's repentance, which by the way, might win the award for the, the worst English translation of a Greek word. The, the word repentance is really a, a combination of two English words, re, to do again, and, um, and penance, penance, which is uh, sort of from that word penance, which basically means to punish yourself. And so repentance is to punish yourself again. And that is possibly the worst, worst translation of a Greek word in all the Bible, because there's no need to punish yourself in the first place. Never mind again. That's not what the New Testament writers were referring to. They were not asking you to punish yourself over and over again, because there's no need to punish yourself for your sin. Because who took the punishment? Jesus, it's finished. It's done. There's no need to punish yourself. To do so would simply be a denial or rejection of what Jesus has already done for you on the cross. So that's not what it is. It's, it's not the popular translation or popular, proper, popular understanding of to turn around or to change your behavior. We saw that the, the word repentance is really the Greek word metanoeo. And it literally means to change your mind to change what you're thinking. And sometimes we need a change of thinking about our sin, that we need to actually recognize that our sin, our behavior is in fact sin because we've justified it. We've ignored it. And we need to recognize it as such that it is sin. And then from there, we need to have a repentance, a change of mind towards trusting Jesus instead of our sin. And that's what the new Testament writers are, are calling us to. And so that repentance starts with a change of mind that then eventually changes to what we, what we think, what we believe, which eventually leads to a change in behavior.
change of the will. And, and the other thing we added though, is that, that it's not that grace stops when you have to confront someone. Because I hear that often that, that we need to balance grace and law and that, that, yeah, it's good to teach grace from time to time, but sometimes you also need to teach the other side of it. And, and the reality is it's all grace. The only thing we're going to teach here that we're going to endeavor to teach here is grace. But part of grace includes confronting someone. Grace isn't sloppy. Grace doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do. Grace says, I love you, but no matter what you're doing, you still got to sit at the table. No matter what's happening, no matter even in your sin and your struggle, you are welcome here and we will work with you. We will love you. We will walk with you as you get through and overcome this struggle because grace never, never reaches a limit. You don't have to turn to it, but in Titus 2, 11 and 12, it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now that grace of God is really Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that brought salvation. And that's why I think the greatest definition for the word grace is Jesus himself. But the grace of God, he says, appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But it goes on in verse 12 saying, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's not the law. It's not condemnation. It's not guilt. It's not rules, It's not principles. It's grace that does all that. And so grace confronts, grace corrects, grace teaches, grace empowers because Jesus Christ is that grace and it is his power that we're relying upon. And as we experience that grace, that grace is going to lead us from freedom from sin. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to kind of finish what we started last week. Last week, we talked about what sin is and some of the sin that the Corinthian church was struggling with that might even apply to you and I today. And we talked about what that sin is and recognizing it in order that we could repent of a change of thought. But now, how do we do that? How do I walk differently? How do I walk in that freedom? That's sort of what we want to continue on and finish this morning. So in 2 Corinthians 13, if you want to join me, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and, and the limitless nature of it and how your grace even is there for us when we're struggling, when we're struggling to overcome sin and I, I pray this morning that, that especially this morning, as we teach on this topic, that, that they be your words, because your words are life. Your, your words lead to freedom and hope. So I look forward to what you're going to speak. I look forward to the change you're going to you have in our hearts. And I pray that each and every one of us here would have the courage to trust it, to receive it. Even though it seems so big and seems so impossible, may we trust what you say to us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice here in this passage is Paul's patience, 
right? He, he, it's not the first time that he's written to them uh, about their sin. We have what we call second Corinthians is really Paul's fourth letter, but the previous letter that was lost, he wrote to them about their sin. And the one before that is first Corinthians. And if you read that, he's talking to them about their sin. So it's not the first time he's addressed it. And in fact, this is now going to be his third visit. So he's been face to face with them and he's talked to them about their sin in the past. And in fact, this third visit, he says earlier in second Corinthians that he delayed it, that he, he didn't come right away because he wanted to give them more time for that repentance, for that remorse to kick in. And so what we see here is, is Paul's patience. And, and now the question is, well, well, why wait? Why didn't he say something earlier? And, and I think basically the, the, the reason for that is it just wasn't time. That it wasn't time because it wasn't the most important thing that they needed to know and understand. That Paul was, was seeing that there is something bigger than cleaning up their behavior. He was more interested in their heart and their spirit and in the relationship with them. That doesn't mean that, that you ignore the behavior. It doesn't mean that you, you don't talk to them about their, their sin, but rather what Paul's doing is he's, he's working towards that relationship in order to have an impact on their heart so they can understand who they are. See, before you can change your behavior, you have to understand that God changed your nature. God changed who you are. When we, when we talk about our identity in Christ, it's sort of a, a buzzword that we use. And it's like shorthand, right? When we say that, it, it means a bunch of things, right? For example, if I say Leafs in the playoffs, you just know that means failure, right? It's just, it's just shorthand. It just kind of goes with that. And so the same idea here with, with when we talk about our identity in Christ, what we're really talking about is our nature, our new heart. And that's what Paul's wanting to convey to them. That's got to take place. That got to take precedent over simply changing their behavior. Jesus said something similar to that in the sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew six thirty three, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Growing up, I heard that as, as seek ye first the kingdom of God, work harder and your own righteousness, clean up your life. And then all these things will be added unto you. And so I put all this weight and pressure on me, but that's not what Jesus was saying. He says, seek ye first my kingdom. Essentially what that is, is get saved, create a relationship with Jesus. And so if you've done that, put a big check mark beside your name, right? Like, well done, you're saved. But now he says, and seek my righteousness. Meaning understand that your nature, your identity, your goodness, your acceptance is because of me, God says, because I've given to you, I've gifted to you my righteousness. Meaning your righteousness is not a product of your behavior. It's a product of Christ's obedience. It's Romans 5.19. And that is so critical that we need to understand because here's the danger. Let's, let's suppose you attach your approval, your acceptance to your behavior. And so you got to clean up your, your choices. You got to start making better choices and not sinning and, and stop getting drunk and stop lying and stop stealing. And, and you do all those things. And then you come to the conclusion and now God will love me. Well, in your mind, he'll only love you as long as you live clean. And you've put yourself under a law-based, a performance-based relationship with God that he wants no part of. He doesn't want to love you and accept you based on what you do. He's already loved you and accepted you based on what Christ has done on the cross. It's a grace-based relationship. 
And so it's more important to God, I believe, that you understand your identity in Christ, your new nature, your new heart, than it is in cleaning up your behavior. Again, not that behavior is not important, but when you understand your nature, that will lead to behavior changes. And that's what God's trying to do. See, in in counseling with people, you know, when they come in and they start to lay out their life and, and you begin to hear what they're struggling with, the worst thing I could do is just jump to the behavior, just jump to some of the things they're doing that are hurting themselves and others because I'm not empowering them with the strength to overcome it. So instead what we do is we start to back up. We take a bigger picture, a bigger look at it and say, well, what do they need to know? They need to know their identity in Christ, that new nature. They need to know what happened on the cross. They need to know and understand Christ living in them. And when all of those big foundational pieces are put in place, now you can build on them. You can build them up. Like we looked at last time, we can begin to edify them by beginning to address some of the things they're struggling with. And I think that's important to understand because before you address someone's behavior, check with Jesus if it's time, because it may not be time. Please understand that, that Jesus was patient with you before he dealt with all your sin. In fact, there's still some things that he hasn't yet dealt with because it's not yet time. And that's okay because we're on his timetable, not our own. So, so Paul's patient, but now it's time. And now he wants to address the sin in their life. But I think for us, what's really helpful to do is to understand what is sin, right? To understand how we overcome it, we got to understand what it is. And the Greek word for sin is, is really an archery term. It, it means to miss the mark. And whether you miss it by an inch or whether you miss it by a mile, it's sin. It, you miss the mark. The Hebrew word for sin is similar. It has that idea of miss, but it's, it goes a little bit further. It means miss causing an offense. So if you kind of put the two together, what this idea of sin is, sin is to miss the mark, to, to miss the standard, to miss the expectation. And in so doing so, you've caused offense. You've, you've hurt people. You've, hurt, you've caused offense in the relationship. Now that obviously includes immorality. Right? It's, it's easy to spot sin when it's immoral, but the reality is it's more than just immorality. Romans 14 is a great example of this. Here in, in Romans chapter 14, Paul's addressing the, uh, the church there, and, and they're, they're having a debate over whether or not it's, it's holy to eat meat or holy to be a vegetarian. And, and they're judging each other. And they're the ones judging the, the, the meat eaters because they think, well, you're, you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And, and the meat eaters are like, well, you don't have faith that God's blessed the meat. And, and so they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And really what Paul's saying is you're missing the point because it's not about whether you're a vegetarian or a meat eater. The issue is your heart. The issue is your faith. So in Romans 14, 23, he sums it up. He says basically this, that whatever is done without faith without trust, without depending upon Jesus, that's sin. That, that blew my mind as a kid. Because for me, sin was simply just, just, you know, smoking and drinking and chewing gum in church and, you know, those type of things. That, that was sin. That's what I was taught. And that was my understanding. But it's much more than that. It's not about behavior. It's about source. Now, immorality, please understand, immorality is easy to spot a sin. Because Christ in you would never do those things. Christ in you would never get drunk, right? If you're looking at pornography, clearly that's not you trusting in Jesus. If you're engaged in any kind of sexual sin, that's not Jesus in you. 
If you're running people down, you're gossiping and you're smearing them or you're powering up with your anger, that's not Jesus. If you're driving slow in the fast lane, that's not Jesus. You need to repent, right? Glad we can agree on that one, right? So obviously we see immorality. We know that sin. We see it as sin. That's easy to spot. But, but morality may be sin as well. Think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees lived the most upright moral life at the time of Jesus. And Jesus' judgment of them, he called them your whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed, clean on the outside. You look great and moral and upright, but your tombs, you're dead on the inside. There's no life to what you're doing because all that they were doing was doing it in their own strength. That's what made it sin. See, if I got up here and I preached this message in my own strength, it would be sin. Doesn't matter what I said. I might even speak as good as Robin. It would still be sin because it'd be coming out of my own strength. You may serve in a soup kitchen. You may help little old ladies cross the street, but if you're doing it in your own strength and your own power, that's sin. See, it's not the behavior that makes it sin. It's the source. Let's, let's think about it this way. Go back to the garden, right? In the garden of Eden, there were two trees. There are a lot of trees, but two in particular. What were the two trees? Tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Notice it wasn't the good tree and the evil tree, right? It wasn't like, hey, if you eat the good tree, you're good. But if you eat the evil tree, you're in trouble. That's not what it was. There was a tree of life. And Jesus and God invites Adam and Eve, eat of that tree of life and you'll find life in me by depending upon me. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will only find death because that's a tree of independence. That's a tree where you'll be your own God. You'll be your own source. You will try to do it on your own. No matter how much you eat out of the right side of that wrong tree, it's still death. And no matter how moral you live, but doing it at your own strength, you're eating out of, still out of that tree of the knowledge, good and evil. And so it's not about morality. It's about needing our faith and our trust in Jesus. Remember what Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning everything we do in our own strength, no matter how good looking it is, it's sin. It's the stuff that gets burnt up in first Corinthians three with that fire, the wood, hay and stubble. So let's ask the question then, if, if sin is not trusting in Jesus, why would we ever sin? I mean, don't you love Jesus? Don't you want to trust Jesus? Of course we do. And yet the reality is we still sin. Now at this point, some would say, well, it's our, it's our nature to sin. It's our sinful nature and sinful nature. Actually, that one probably wins the word for best for worst translation in the English Bible. See the word there in Greek is sarks and it literally means flesh, your body. And it's, it's sometimes used that way as you're talking about your physical body, but mostly it's talking about a way of living independent of God. But when you translate it as sinful nature, you're confusing a couple things. Number one, when you hear the word sinful, you, you think of immorality and you fail to see it's more than that. And then the other part, and this is the deeper part, you now think of it's your nature. Well, if you have a sinful nature, then what hope do you have of ever making good choices? I mean, I've heard this analogy. Well, it's the, it's the good dog and the bad dog. 
How many people have heard that analogy before, right? There's a, there's a good dog in you and a bad dog in you. And the question is, who are you going to feed? Right? So if you're, if you're watching, you know, dirty movies and if you're listening to bad music and like country music, and, and if you're, if you got bad friends and, and that sort of thing, and you're cheering for Ottawa or Montreal, then that's going to feed the bad dog, right? And the bad dog's going to grow bigger and stronger. He's going to overcome the good dog. But if you feed the good dog, right? You, you listen to good music and you watch, you watch good movies and you have good friends and then that sort of thing. And you read your Bible and so then that good dog will overpad, overpower the bad dog. Do you realize that that's the case? There's three of you now. There's the good dog. There's the bad dog. And then there's the one doing the feeding. And the question is the one doing the feeding. Is he good or bad? I mean, you're schizophrenic now. You got mental problems. And Jesus then has set you up for failure. Remember what Jesus says, a house divided cannot stand. And if you have a good nature and a bad nature and they're battling it out, he sets you up for failure. That's not what he's done. See that, that, that term flesh that's been translated sinful nature so poorly is not your nature. It's not who you are. Rather, it's an enemy inside of you that's waging war with you. Paul discovered this enemy in Romans 7. And in 17 and 20, he, he makes this incredible statement. He basically repeats himself in those two verses. It's no longer I, but sin, the flesh that dwells in me. He's, this, he's making a distinction between him and the flesh. It's not who he is. It's not his nature. It's an enemy inside of him waging war with him because his nature is good. Remember in Ephesians 4, 24, when we, we were going through the book of Ephesians, we saw there that incredible verse where you're the new man, the new self, the new you has been created in the likeness of God in holiness and in righteousness. And that's the truth. Isn't that amazing? Donna, you have a new heart made in the likeness of God. You are as righteous and holy as God is today because of what he did. That's the truth. That's our nature. There's nothing sinful about it, but you and I are in a battle. We're waging war with something that is tempting us to sin and you will sin because it's not about sinless perfection. That's not the goal. You will continue to sin, but when you do, you will find an advocate. John writes this in, in first John chapter two, verses one and two. You don't have to turn there, but he, he writes them. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the desire, right? It is a good desire. Don't sin. But he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. He himself is a wrath averting sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. He's already addressed the sin. So you will fail. You will make mistakes. It's okay because God's already dealt with it. He's already forgiven you for it. But the reality is we don't have to sin. And we don't actually want to sin because it's not our nature. One of my favorite definitions of sin is from a man named Bob Toby. And he says, sin is getting a God-given need met in a God-forbidden way. Sin is getting a God-given need met, but in a God-forbidden way. See, the reality is you and I, we are created with needs because you're people, you're humans. You are created with the, in, the purpose by design to have needs. 
And that's important to understand because some of you out there are thinking, no, no, I don't need anyone. Not true. You were designed that way. Because if you don't need anyone, then you don't need God. And you're not God. And so we all have needs. We have, we have fundamental needs, needs like to be loved, to be accepted, to know that I belong somewhere and that I have value and worth and significance, that I'm important. And that all of that is secure, meaning it's not going to disappear overnight. It's not going to, I'm not going to lose it because I said the wrong thing. I'm not going to lose it because someone goes back in my, my history on social media and finds an inappropriate tweet from two years ago. It's never going to change. That I can never be canceled. I'll never be rejected. I'll never be loved less. And I'll never be loved more because I'm already perfectly loved. Those are the, that's what it means to be secure. And that's what we need. That's what we require. And so the question is, sin comes along and says, let's, let's satisfy that God-given need. It's good that you need to be loved, but let's satisfy it in an unholy way, in a God-forbidden way. That was the lie in the garden. Be like God. But here's how you can do it on your own. Eat of that tree. Do it your own way. And so that's the lie. That's the deception that sin's offering to us. And so it, it's trying to offer you ways to get needs for love and acceptance met. Maybe it's going to trade sex for love. If you, if you have sex with this person, you will feel loved by them. Or maybe it's using pornography to feel loved or just not alone. Or maybe it's changing who you are in order for you to fit in with other people. And you put on masks and you act differently. Or you work really, really hard to keep everyone happy with you. Avoid conflict, be a people pleaser, meet everyone's expectations or you're manipulating other people to get what you want so that you feel good about yourself. Or maybe you just run other people down and you're critical of them to feel better about yourself. Point out all their shortcomings and failings and flaws so that you feel better about yourself as a result. So those are some of the things that we're doing, trying to get our needs met independent of God. But then there's another aspect of the flesh of sin. What it offers to us is ways to protect yourself. So if you can't get your needs met, at least make sure you don't get hurt and make sure at least no one takes away what little love and acceptance you have. And so maybe we do that by withdrawing and hiding. We just sort of take a step back away from people, keep them at an arm's length, keep them at a good distance because that way, A, they can't get up too close and see all my spots and imperfections, at least my perceived ones. And so I withdraw, I hide, I, I, I push them away. Because again, if they're not too close to me, then I can't get hurt. And if I don't let them into my life, then when they reject me, I won't get hurt because it won't matter to me. And so we reject them before they have a chance to reject us or we control. We control everyone and everything around me so that everything goes well. So I just don't get hurt. All different ways of trying to protect ourselves. And then finally, when all of that fails, when you don't get your needs met and you can't protect yourself and you've been hurt and abused, then you find ways to cover up that pain, to numb it, seeking your own comfort, whether it be drugs, alcohol, maybe it's again, sex and pornography, or maybe it's just simply disappearing into social media or reading books or, or watching TV. Just again, just trying to feel nothing or feel something different. 
remember doing those things doesn't automatically make it sin. It's not wrong to watch a movie. It's not wrong to read a book. It's when we're doing it independent of Jesus. So when we're doing it in our own strength, trying to cover up our hurt without him, that's what makes it sin. Cause he's inviting us into something else. Again, why would anyone choose sin then? Well, because of how sin works, how it, how it wages war with your new heart by attacking your mind, right? It's waging war with our thoughts, waging war with our mind. Romans seven talks about this in verse 23, how he sees a different principle, different power, Paul says, sin, the flesh. It's waging war with my mind. It's waging war with me. The one who wants to do good, trying to get me to do what it wants instead. Well, how does it do that? Well, there's lots of ways, but I think basically what it's doing is it's dropping these thoughts in your mind, but doing it in a very subtle way. You see, if, if someone showed up in your mind wearing a red suit and, and a pitchfork and a tail, you would clearly identify them as a Montreal Canadiens fan. And you would never listen to them and you would ignore them. But it doesn't show up that way. Instead, it shows up in a, in a way that is so subtle, you don't even know it's coming from someone else. So it's using your own language. It's speaking like you. It knows your whole history. It knows all the right buttons to push, all the hurts and pains from your past. And it knows all the things that you like to do to cope with it. And in doing so, it will now attack that way. And so it starts off with thoughts of, I am so alone. I'm just, I'm just, I don't belong here. I'm not safe here. No one loves me. Not really. If anyone really knew the real me, they want nothing to do with me. And as those thoughts start to drop into my mind bit by bit over and over again, what happens to our emotions? Our emotions start to rise up. And I feel in love and I feel that aloneness and I feel rejected. And that combination of, I feel it and I'm thinking it, what do I conclude? Well, it must be true. And it's so hard in that moment now, because I'm, I'm letting my feeler dictate what's truth to me. But, but the whole time flesh is just feeding it over and over and over again. And like this little you know, snowflake that first hit the ground and just started to roll slowly and slowly down the hill eventually gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it feels now so massive. It feels so big and it feels so real and it's so hard to ignore. And I, I, I hear it and I think, well, it, it must be true. And so now at this moment, I'm, I'm just screaming for some kind of relief. Maybe there's something I can do to get Norm to love me. Maybe there's something I can do to, get, to prevent Bobby Joe from hurting me. Maybe there's just something I can do just to feel different. Just, just turn it all off. And at that moment, the flesh says, I got an idea. What if I have another drink? What if I just keep snacking? What if I just keep watching TV? What if I go and I try to make this person love me? What if, what if, what if? And in that moment, what it does is it offers to me a sinful solution to a God-given need. And I take it. The problem is in the moment, it feels good. All sin in the moment feels good, right? That's biblical. It says that in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, I think verse six, 
Talks about the sin has a pleasure, a time of pleasure. And the reason is if it didn't, no one would do it, no one would do it twice. Right? If it was if it was enjoyable to eat eat Brussels sprouts, you would eat it all the time. Right? But we don't. And so we, but sin feels good in the moment. The problem is the after effects. After you sin, what do you experience? Death. The wages of sin is death. It always is, always will be, never changes. You'll always experience death. But well, what does that mean? First off, it's not spiritual death. Please understand when you sin, you do not separate yourself from God. He doesn't turn his back on you. You don't learn, lose fellowship. You, you don't alter your relationship in any way. He's right there with you the whole time. He might be looking at you going, you know, this isn't really good, but I still love you. I'm not going anywhere because he's already that offer that propitiation, that sacrifice. You've already been forgiven. He's already dealt with the sin. He doesn't need to run away from it. He's not afraid of your sin. And so it's not spiritual death. There's no change in your relationship with him in any way. Because if there was, if there was a spiritual death, the moment you sinned, then every time you sin, you would lose your salvation, which means you are under the law that your salvation is only as good as you are at keeping the law. And that's not, that's not Christianity. That's not the new covenant. That's not grace. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done, but maybe even worse if you lose your salvation, you have to get saved all over again. Who would have to die all over again? And Jesus died how many times? Once. Once was enough. So it's not spiritual death that you're experiencing. It's death in your soul and in your body. And I remember thinking like, how do I explain that to people? And really the best way to explain it is think back to the last time you sinned. Last time you did something you knew you shouldn't have done. How'd you feel about it afterwards? You felt miserable. You, you felt embarrassed, felt guilty, and, 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 and maybe, maybe some self-hatred. You felt weak and tired, maybe. You couldn't look people in the eye. You just wanted to run and hide. You felt exhausted. You, you, you felt it even in your bones, physically, just drained, just tired. That's death in your soul and in your body. You're listening to the lies. You're believing the lies of shame. There's something wrong with you, that you're dirty. You're not good enough. You're, you're, just, you're just continuing to feed all those misbeliefs. And it, you're, you've lost that power. You've lost that strength. And although Christ is in you in that moment, you're doing it in your own power, in your own, in your own abilities. And that's what death looks like. And that's what we're going to experience every time when we trust in sin. And so if sin's not your nature, then what is it? Well, it's your old master. It used to be what controlled you. It used to be the one that dominated you, but not anymore. Now it's still going to come after you. And the worst thing you can do in that moment is offer it a rule, offer it a law. I say that because turning your Bibles to, to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back one book. And listen to what Paul says about what, what the law will do or what the law does to sin. 
First uh, Corinthians 15, beginning in verse uh, 56, 50, yeah, 56. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Do you realize that if you're struggling with sin in some way, you will be able to spot that there's a law that you've put yourself under. There's some performance, something you're trying to measure up to in order to gain love and acceptance or protection or worth or value or security or something. And sin has convinced you to go back under the law because flesh, the sin needs the law. That's where it draws its power from. That's why we had to be set free from the law. So the worst thing you could do is try to fight sin with rules, with the law. Thou shalt not. Because think about it. The moment I start thinking about thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the sin. And I've stopped thinking about Jesus. Right? Think about driver training, right? When you were learning how to drive, did the instructor say, now I see that telephone pole. Don't hit it. Just keep an eye on it and don't hit it. Because that would be really bad, right? So don't hit it. Don't hit it. Well, if your eyes are on the telephone pole, what begins to happen while you're driving? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's not going to end well. Maybe if you're in a Hummer, you got a chance, right? But if you're in a little Ford Fiesta, it ain't going to look good, right? Because your eyes now have gotten off the road and where you want to go and onto don't drive over here. And that's how sin does. That's how it works. Get your eyes off of Jesus and onto it. And eventually you will drive into a telephone pole. And so that's not where our focus is. So he goes on in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory through your hard work and determination and effort. It's not what it says, right? Who gives you victory because you really got serious about your sin this time. And you prayed hard and you read your Bible and you worked hard and you had a calendar and you just checked it off every time you lived a clean day. It's not what it says. But thanks be to God who gives you victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where our victory comes from. And I say that because I think Paul writing to them in second Corinthians kind of figured out that these, these Corinthians were struggling with their sin. And one of the things I hear over and over again, when people are struggling with their sin is, is they, they say something to the effect of, but I just can't find victory. I'll never overcome it. I've tried, I've done everything I know how, and I still can't find victory. Do you hear the problem? It's all I, there's no room for Jesus in there. And they're the one trying to do it. And I think Paul, knowing that he, he speaks to them on that very aspect of it. So if we go back to second Corinthians 13 in verse four, Paul says this, for indeed he was crucified. Jesus was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. Think about it. The resurrection power that brought life to Jesus's dead body, that, that rescued him out of hell, that's the power that Paul has in mind. Because he goes on, for we also are weak in him. I can't do anything in my own strength. I'm inadequate. I'm incapable. I, the best of me is still worth nothing. I'm weak in him. Yet we live with him because of the power, the same resurrection power that brought Jesus from the, from the grave, that power of God now resides where? In me. In essence, it's not about you. 
It's not about your strength. It's not about your power. It's not about what you're going to do to overcome your sin. It's about what God does in you. Let me illustrate to you this way. Suppose you're playing a game of pickup basketball and, and, and you're, you're going up against some guys and these guys are really good. And it's, it's, you're down by a point and it's sort of the last possession, last shot. And you're like, okay, well, we can run a really good play here. And you kind of, you know, pin down and we'll do a pick and roll and we'll pop out and pass to the corner. And hopefully we'll get an open shot and hopefully it goes in. And so you're kind of looking around and we're like, okay, we, we got some decent players and maybe everything goes right. We might win. Or the coach could say, you know, we got Michael Jordan in his prime here. What if we give the ball to Michael? And what if we just sort of get out of his way and let him win the game for us? Well, against a bunch of pickup players, every time he's going to win. And that's the case. It's not about you creating this magical play in your own strengths and abilities, maximizing your strengths, minimizing your weaknesses. And hopefully the shot goes in the basket. Hopefully you overcome the sin. Instead, you go, Jesus, why don't you take the ball here? And I'm going to trust your power. Well, that's a great illustration, but what does that look like? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter six, because I think Romans six gives the best description of what victory over sin looks like. I don't, I don't know how you can properly and adequately teach victory over sin without Romans six. And, and I love this book. In fact, in a, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be teaching Romans 5 through 8 at Crossways. And I'm so excited, looking forward to that. And everyone's welcome to, to attend that if you want. Go talk to Sheila about uh, details for that if you're interested in it. But it's such a great passage here in chapter 6 because Paul's addressing this issue of sin. And he asked the question, you know, after saying that where, where sin abounds, grace superabounds all the more. The natural question is, well, should we just continue in sin that we might get more grace? And so he's going to answer that question about why it's insane for a Christian to continue in sin because we have victory over sin. And so he's going to explain, give the the answer in verse one. And the answer is, shall we continue in sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? The answer verse two and three is may it never be. And here's why that's not the answer because it's so crazy. It's so ludicrous because he says, how shall we who die to sin still live in it? Now notice it doesn't say, how shall we continue in sin when Jesus died for it? You're forgiven. It's ridiculous. That's not what Paul says. Who died in verse two? We died. Verse three, or do you not know? Is this new information? Has no one one told you that when you were baptized, when you were placed into, that's literally what the word baptized means. When you were placed into Christ Jesus, you were also placed into his death. Something miraculous happened on that cross. Much more than just being forgiven. Because being forgiven, as wonderful as that is, gives me no power or strength to stop the next sin. But it's crazy that I would continue in sin. It's crazy that I would look to sin when I died to sin. I died to its power. That on that cross, more than just my sins were placed in Jesus, every believer was also placed into Christ. And we were crucified with him. Verse four says you were buried with him. And five says that in order that we would be raised up with him with new resurrection power, the life of Jesus inside of us. 
And so he's summing all this in verse six and seven. He says, knowing this, knowing that you were baptized, knowing that you were placed into Christ, knowing that you were placed into his death, into his burial and into his resurrection, knowing this verse six, that our old self was crucified with him. The sinner you were when you arrived here on planet earth is dead and buried and gone. Now you're a saint. You're a holy one. You're a righteous one. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that here's the purpose in order that our body of sin. Now my translation says might be done away with. If you might have a translation that says might be destroyed. Both those aren't very good translations. The best translation is be rendered powerless. You see, sin didn't die. I died. The old sinner died. The old slave to sin died, but my old master's still around. But as a new creation, I'm not a slave anymore. I don't owe it anything anymore, but it's still around. So knowing this, the old slave, the old sinner was crucified with him so that sin would be rendered powerless so that you would no longer be its slave because verse seven, anyone who has died is freed from sin. How many people are freed from sin today? How many people still sin from time to time today? Every hand better go up for both of them. Right? But you're freed because it doesn't say you're freed from sinning. Doesn't guarantee you'll never sin. It just says you're freed from sin, the noun, the flesh, from its power over you, which means every time you and I sin, it's because we chose to. Oh, that one hurt. I choose to sin now. I don't have to. I can live free. So how do I do that? What, what's the attitude? What's the mindset that I need to adopt and take to do that? Verse 11 to 13. Memorize this passage. This is, this is one of those passages that just drill into your head. Don't worry about getting the grammar and punctuation right. It doesn't matter. Just get the idea of it right. Because 11 to 13 is the single greatest passage when it comes to how do I face sin, the flesh, and temptation. And Paul says this, reckon. My translation says, consider too weak of a word. That's just sort of like, think about it. You have an option to no, 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 no. This is like, it's a mathematical term. It's an accounting term. It's where we get reconciled from means add it up. This is the fact. This is the truth. Hold on to this. That's how powerful this is. Reckon what? That you are dead to sin. That sin has no command over you, has no control over you. You are free from its, its dominion and its power. You are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have a new heart. You have a new nature. You've been bought with a price. You belong to him. You were on one team and you got traded and went to a new team. And that trade involved your death, your burial, and your resurrection. You're a new creation now on a new team, belonging to Jesus, belonging to God. That's who you belong to. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let the flesh have dominion or control over you that you would obey its lust. Whose lust? Sin's lust, not your lust. Because the desire to sin, where does it come from? Not me. That's Romans 7 again. Right? You read Romans 7, and Paul's saying, I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. And the very thing I want to do, I'm not doing. What's Paul's desire? Is it sinful? No. If Paul was sinful, he would be saying, I'm doing the thing I kind of want to do. That's not what he says, though. I'm not doing the thing I want to do. In fact, I'm doing the very thing I hate. 
So he's talking about sinning. And then he gets, again, in 17 and 20, he says, I discovered this thing, this great principle that is no longer the one me doing it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not denying that he sinned. Right? He doesn't come up to Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah, the other day when I punched you in the face, wasn't me. Pulls a shaggy, right? Wasn't me. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's accepted the fact that he did it. He's saying, but I'm no longer the source of it. It doesn't start with me. The idea, the desire came from something in me that's not me. It's coming from the flesh, also known as sin. And I'm dead to it. And I'm not going to let it rain in my mortal body. I'm not going to obey sin's desires, sin's lusts, sin's thoughts, because that's not my heart. I want to do what's right. I want to do what's what's good. I want to see Jesus live through me. I want to see love reign. That's what I want. That's my heart's desire. And the glory of the cross is you now get to choose that. You're not fighting with yourself anymore. You're fighting with your old master and you just say no to him and yes to Jesus. Therefore, verse 13, don't go on presenting your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Every time we listen to the flesh, we become an instrument of unrighteousness. And what's coming out of that is the flesh, the, the deeds of the flesh, the anger, the outbursts, the, the immorality, the sensuality, the impurity, everything that we looked at in Galatians 5, as well as in, in the end of Second uh, Corinthians 12. And we become instruments of that, vehicles of that. But instead, what we can do is we can offer ourselves to God, alive from the dead, new creation, say, God, what do you want to do instead? And so when you're feeling that temptation, when you're feeling that pull, turn to Jesus. Jesus, I don't want to do that sin. I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to get high. I don't want to watch that movie or that program or go on the internet. I don't, I don't want to say those things to those people. I don't want to be bitter anymore. I don't want to talk them down. I don't want to be critical and controlling. I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to be insecure. I want to trust you now. And we turn our eyes to Jesus. And the moment you do that, the moment you begin to, to set your mind on Jesus, you're beginning to walk in the spirit. And as we saw last week in Galatians 5, 16, walk by the spirit and you will not promise. Fulfill the desires of the flesh, of sin. And so we turn our mind, we turn our focus onto Jesus. And we say, here I am, Lord, what do you want to do instead? That's it. Just that simple turn to Jesus. That's Romans 6, 11 to 13. I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to you in Jesus. All right, let me close with some final thoughts. Number one, please understand sinning is not our primary, not sinning is not, is not our primary goal, right? That it's not about not sinning. Not sinning is a byproduct of walking with Jesus. That's our goal. That's what we want. And every temptation is an opportunity to do that. See, you will experience temptation to the day you leave this earth because this, the tempter sin is in our bodies and it's going to continue to wage war. That's what it's going to do until the day you die. But every time it tempts you, it's an opportunity for you to turn to Jesus, for you to trust him, to walk with him and to know him. But you also don't have to do it alone. You have people here who want to love you and support you because I know how hard it is in that moment to turn to Jesus. When your emotions are screaming at you and the flesh is coming out your mind with thought after thought after thought, it's just like just a machine gun of shame, a machine gun of temptation, a machine gun of, of, of self-pity and victimhood. And it's just coming at you over and over again. And, and the emotions are just 
just blowing up on you. It's so hard in that moment to trust Jesus. Recognize that. But then you can call out to a friend. Now, most people are afraid to, because if I tell my friend that I'm struggling with, with porn or I'm struggling with lying or I'm struggling with this sin, it's embarrassing because I, I believe the lie that my struggle says something about me, but whose desire is it? Not yours. So don't own it. Don't own that desire. It's not coming from you. In fact, by reaching out, what are you saying your real desire is? I want to live right. I want to trust Jesus. And that's what the church gets to do. We get to be the body of Christ to come along you and support you by reminding you who you are. And we can pray for you. We can love you. We can encourage you. We can edify you. And quite frankly, the act of reaching out often on its own is enough to break the flesh and what it's saying to us. And finally, if you're in this deep struggle and you want help, come see me here afterwards. Come see Robin or Greg or Josh or, or just someone else. And we would love to help you and support you. If you're embarrassed because you're thinking, well, if I'm meeting them afterwards, everyone's going to know that I'm struggling with some kind of sin. That's okay. Then just send us a message this week. And we'd love to help you. We'd love to be alongside you to remind you who you are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for that freedom that you've given to us. Freedom to live right, freedom to live holy, freedom to live in you and from you. That we're no longer under sin's dominion because the sinner died. The sinner was buried and is never making a comeback. And now we are new creations in you. Made in your likeness and holiness and truth. And Lord Jesus, I pray now that we would trust you with that. And I know how hard that is. And I thank you for your patience. I thank you for the people you've surrounded us with. I thank you that you always provide a way out. You always provide us an opportunity to trust you. Even if we failed the, the five, 10, 15 previous times, this moment is a new moment and a new opportunity to trust you. And where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.